So this morning's reading is from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he urged in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us. So we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend, t- spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, who he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of our own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think of the, de- <coughs> sorry, of the deity as like gold, or while God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, Some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them, but some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius and, uh, sorry, Dionysius the (laughs) Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. And together we pray. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Morning, everybody. How are you? We good? Good. Yay. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, I'm Sam, everybody. Um, It's good to be here, despite what happened last night. There's been a lot of chat about the rugby. Um, Myself, personally, I found myself in a room basically full of Cantabrians last night. So there was like a church advertised event that was like, come along, watch the game together. 
basically all people from Christchurch, so it was awful. I'm still recovering. Um, but luckily, I was actually born in Upper Hutt, so I'm going to self-identify as a Wellingtonian for uh, the next few months just to get through, I think. Um, thank you, Andy, for reading that out. Um, Andy was told just a minute ago that he had to do the reading, which is an absolute hospital pass because it's full of ancient Greek words, so he did really well. It's good. Um, so we're going to talk about what Paul said uh, in that passage, and I'm really stoked about this. I love what Paul has to say. I love his posture and the way he talks. Um, it says in the passage that he's really distressed by what he sees, but the way he goes about uh, explaining his viewpoint to people is really great. He sort of goes and he goes, I like what I see. This is good stuff. I see what you're trying to do, and you're so close. Uh, but let me tell you what you're actually trying to get at. Um, let me tell you where the proper home is for all your longings and your spirituality. Um, and as I've sat with this text, I've sort of wondered, what might Paul say if he was doing the same thing in Auckland today? And sort of got to the conclusion that he'd probably say something quite similar to what he said in the Areopagus to these ancient Athenians. So that's what we're going to look at today. It's sort of like the the way we can bridge those two uh, times and places. The passage still speaks to us today, I think. Uh, before we get to that, I just want to say a few things about how my day starts. And if you have kids, I apologize uh, for what I'm about to say. This is going to be extremely painful. My day starts with an alarm uh, that I have predetermined to wake me up at a certain time. Okay, that's how my day starts, by the time of my choosing. Uh, and then somewhere along the day, I might log into some sort of social media feed, and I'll be presented with videos that, um, or media that are interested, are interesting to me because of my viewing habits. Um, I then might choose a source of news uh, for me to see what's going on in the world, but probably only read the bits that I want to. Um, I'll then be presented with ads, uh, you know, tailored to me, where they'll say, "Come and get the life that you've always dreamed of. Uh, make your money work for you." And uh, if I'm really lucky, there are hot singles in your area willing to meet. So that's all good news, right? Um, <clears throat> then I might listen to a playlist uh, built out of an algorithm that's been formed around my tastes, sometimes better than the ones I can really create for myself. Um, and then while I'm doing that, I might get an alert on my phone saying, your usual route to work is congested. Here's an alternative route for you. I think, great, I'll do that. And then I get in the car and I put on a podcast if I want to. But if I find the, uh, the, the speaker of the podcast uh, too abrasive or maybe just overly enthusiastic, I can just chuck it on a different podcast because uh, I don't want my inner world to be negatively impacted by the outer world. Um, so I go about my day choosing what I eat, choosing what I watch, and choosing the people I see, all mediated through my phone. Uh, and uh, very aware that if I want to, I can log on to a very different app and choose the sort of person that I might want to, uh, to meet uh, based on location, height, beliefs, age, and whether or not they want to have children. Um, in short, my phone is training me to see life as a series of personalizations. Uh, and we are being trained to see life through a series of personalizations. Um, we are adapting to this world I think primarily by going through uh, the world and adapting to our inner inclinations. Um, because this is a space we feel like we can actually control in a world that seems pretty chaotic otherwise. Um, and it's exactly the same 
when it comes to faith and spirituality. We want to be able to personalize and adapt to our own inner inclinations and what feels right to us. We are used to being the center of gravity. Um, And actually, it doesn't matter what you believe, whether you've got a huge amount of faith or not very much, um, that temptation is always present for all of us to kind of give in to this idea that faith and spirituality is primarily a place where my uh, desires and inclinations get the first say. So that's where we are. But even though our technologies have begun to monopolize that, um, it's actually a long story for how we got to the place where our inner worlds kind of have the most say in the way that we build truth, meaning, and ideas around God. And there's a a long philosophical uh, history to that, which we won't go into. But something very, I think, very significant happened in the 20th century that got us to a point to think my inner world or looking within is the best place to go to. Um, In the 20th century, we obviously uh, had a few Great wars. We had, we had. Well, they weren't great, were they? We had World War One, World War Two, and a few other things thrown in the mix as well. But at the start of the 20th century, uh, there were a few big ideas that kind of uh, hung the whole of the West, at least, together. You know, ideas like honor and virtue, and for king and country, and uh, like you know, sacrifice ideas like this were really big ideas that most people really bought into and kind of glued everyone together. And so when the Great War started, or World War I started, you actually find millions of young men around uh, Europe um, queuing up to go to fight for their country and for what they believed in. It was something that actually just totally made sense. Uh, It was the idea that these ideas of sacrifice and honor and virtue, they actually had real weight in the sense that um, to live well was to give your life to something bigger than you, something external or independent to your own uh, experience, to connect our little lives to something bigger. But that actually changed during the course, mainly through these wars. So during World War I especially, um, for the first time, these ideas, they rang hollow. Um, These big ideas of empire and honor and virtue and sacrifice began to ring hollow as these men especially watched their mates get blown up uh, next to them, get blown to bits, Um, some of them being eaten alive by rats and maggots um, in trenches across Europe for seemingly no reason, some of them frostbitten to death, And uh, the fight didn't seem to have a lot of sense to it. There was just carnage. And as these people experienced this very dark, meaningless time, those words, those big ideas that have been hanging us together for a long time began to not do the same work. Our stories began to let us down. Um, And as the century progressed, we even saw um, our greatest achievement at that point, which was to split the atom, result in probably one of the most hellish moments in history. This idea that our stories had actually really begun to let us down. What could we hang our lives on now? So we actually did something which was in many ways quite logical, which is we can't rely on stuff out there 
we now have to rely on stuff in here for truth and meaning. And that's what we did. God became something that we found within us. And that's what happened through the 60s and so on. That's where we find ourselves now in a place where we don't really trust in big ideas so much or big stories. And in New Zealand, like much of the West, uh, this is exactly what happens with spirituality. You know, New Zealand is really uh, into spirituality, um, and for the majority of us, we remain open to it. Um, but most people in New Zealand would say that they, are very, uh, they think that spirituality is very or extremely important to our overall well-being uh, and for our mental health. But you'll notice that spirituality, framed this way, is what can it bring to me? It's sort of categorized in a sort of therapeutic space, like what can spirituality and faith do for my inner world? Really interesting shift. These are not ideas that I sit under anymore. They are things that help me and my inner world. Um, So we are very spiritual in New Zealand, but we have a big distrust for big ideas and stories that want to form us. We kind of see it totally as like a framing of like an exercising of power and nothing more than that. Truth should not be out there because I can't trust it. We can't trust it because look what it's brought to us. We now have to look inside for anything that we can really rely on. There's a distrust for anything external or independent to us. So, why can't Kiwis leave God alone? Why are we not just like a nation of atheists? And why are we not just content to sort of binge Netflix, order Uber Eats, and have a decent Friday night every once in a while? Why do we seem to keep going back to the spiritual? Well, along with Paul, I think I want to probably affirm that every human being has a set of longings that are looking for their proper home. We have a dimension to ourselves and longings that are looking for their proper home. We keep doing spirituality because we can't actually do anything else. We need it. And no matter what we believe, uh, we get confronted by the transcendent. We, we start to feel something bigger than ourselves. Uh, we come in contact with things that feel like God. It could be, it could be the birth of a child. Uh, it could be the immensity of nature. It could be the sacredness of a funeral as we reflect on the weight of a human life. It could be a, a pure expression of love. Um, it could be an overwhelming experience of unity with a group of people or a sense of a spiritual awakening to the world. God keeps showing up in our lives. But like clues to a hidden message, um, there's a danger of reading those experiences in the wrong way. We kind of need like some sort of keystone to make sense of all of the experiences of the transcendent that we come into contact with. Because of the water we swim in and the culture that's sort of aiming a certain direction, telling us to look within, um, often we're encouraged to look within to find this meaning. But I actually want to affirm (laughs) our culture's desire to keep searching. Um, It's good. I'm so stoked that New Zealand keeps engaging in the spiritual. We're not really here to shut it down, but to bring it home. Uh, to understand that as we look around and see how so many things we've put our hopes in have led us down, 
to say, actually, it makes total sense for people to want to look inward and protect themselves from things they can't control. Totally. It's way, more, it's way easier to control an experience you might have, I don't know, in, in some sort of like meditation studio than to engage with a God that might ha- want to have a say in your life. So, we're looking for something concrete to rely on that will be safe. And I think that's especially true after the last two years. People are looking for something. But again, I think, again, the last two years, we've seen more stories crumble of ways that we thought we were, and it's been revealed that actually things are a little bit more chaotic than we thought they were. We see supply chains crumbling all over the place. We thought we had more social cohesion than we did. We certainly don't know as much as we did about how the world is supposed to work. So we are experiencing a lot of chaos, and the temptation is, I can't control or trust in anything out there. I need to just look within for what's concrete. Are you with me? Cool. (laughs) All right. So we've got Paul in the marketplace 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world. This is geographically and so distant in time. And the interesting thing is that the audience that Paul was speaking to 2,000 years ago in this passage we just read was not that different to current-day Aotearoa. Uh, The Greco-Roman world of the first century, it was into spirituality. Um, God was all the rage. And, uh, but like us, they liked gods that they could systematize uh, and pick and choose from and maybe tailor to their own needs. That's kind of how religion and spirituality works for them. It's pretty similar. So Paul arrives in Athens. He's doing a little bit of a tour. And uh, Paul walks into the center of culture and religion and ideas. He walks into the synagogues, the marketplaces, and finally the Areopagus, which is like the intellectual center of the city. And he reasons with the people. But he does it by actually affirming what they're doing first. He says, um, he says to them that he can see that they're religious in every way. And they're listening. He then starts to talk about how they sense true things. And their poets and philosophers point this out. And they're still listening. He even starts to, to push them and say that we can't limit God to our own constructions. And they're still listening. It's only when he brings up the resurrection that God has acted definitively in history through one man, he doesn't even mention the name Jesus here, that they start to push back, they scoff. Because as soon as there's a reality external to us, or external to them, that they can't control or dictate or manage, spirituality is no longer just spirituality. It's a completely different posture towards being a human in an ultimate reality. We are no longer calling the shots if it's God and not just the spirituality. So let me piggyback on Paul. Don't think about that image too much. (laughs) I think we are driven to spirituality as human beings because despite all of the mystery of truth that we have, We still long for a sense of the transcendent and for purpose in our lives and for meaningful experiences. But when we narrow it to what we can sense within, we actually end up trapping ourselves in what our minds can manage. 
and we miss out on the immensity of the love on offer. And this is so true for myself constantly. This isn't it's a constant struggle. Can I let God be God and not just a source of comfort or something? It's a dead end if you're looking within yourself for God. And I'll, and I'll just give you a little bit of example of this. I, I love talking about this. Um, if you only look within for God, uh, you've got a problem before you even get to working out what bits of you He is, right? And the problem is <laughs> you don't even know, you don't even have the means to work out which bits are actually really you. And let me just work with me as I ask you a few questions. The question I really want to ask is, who is the real you, right? Have you thought about that lately? Who is the real you? So I'm going to just give you a few prompts. Is the real you your character? Or is it uh, your intentions? Uh, or is it your desires? Is the real you the things you've inherited? Or is it the things that you have decided for yourself? Uh, is, it, is the real you the things that you celebrate about yourself, or is it actually the things you put up with? Um, is the real you the things you actually hide from yourself, or is it the things that aren't you, but you want them so they influence who you become? The answer is, there's no way of working that out by looking within. It's hugely confusing. The quest to even find the real you is impossible alone, let alone deciding which parts of those inner sensations are God right? Where we kind of hit a little bit of a dead end. The search for God within will ultimately lead to confusion and an inability to experience love from a God that we can actually know in a meaningful way. And that's the dead end that a lot of our spiritualities are smacking up against today. What a great place to start a conversation. But in Jesus, the quest for God looking within, it has a home because the basis of this isn't on my ability to define myself in God, but in God defining himself to me and then defining me on the basis of that relationship. And now looking within is about finding echoes of that God that I've come into contact with. And I'm freed from my insularity and looking within to find that. Making sense? <laughs> whoop, whoop, thank you. Okay. And if we continue to look for meaningful experience just in a personalized, user-friendly space, we miss out on what actually makes life meaningful. It isn't about just what uh, lines up with my own inner sense of meaning or what makes me come alive, which has become very popular lately, but in my ability to give myself away to others in love. So let me follow um, Paul's lead here too. And I actually want to refer to one of our writers or poets and philosophers. Um, and uh, one, of the, one of the most famous books of the 20th century was a book called The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Has anyone read that book in the room? Zero. Wow, okay. Oh, no. One. You get a chocolate afterwards, I think. This is, that's good. Okay, so um, this is a book written by uh, a guy called Milan Kundera. And... Um, the whole book is about trying to choose between freedom and cool experiences that ultimately leave you empty and then uh, actually giving yourself away to responsibility and burden, but ultimately that leads to more fulfilling meaning. And he says this at the start of the book. He says, The heaviest of burdens is simultaneously an image of life's most intense fulfillment. 
The heavier the burden, the closer our lives come to the earth. Conversely, the absolute absence of burden makes man lighter than air, to soar into the heights, take leave of the earth and his earthly being, and become only half real, his movements as free as they are insignificant. What then shall we choose, weight or lightness? So just like their poets were pointing to something really true, so are our writers. What are we going to choose? You can personalize your, your world as much as you like and, uh, I guess, avoid responsibility and make things as personalized and catered to your own uh, wants and desires as you want. But what are you going to choose? Weight or lightness is a recognition that that is how it works. We know that if we want to live a meaningful life, it's often found in the discomfort, responsibility, boredom, frustration, inconvenience of true community and giving ourselves away in love. I'm not painting a very good picture, but it's how it is. We can choose lightness and simply gravitate to what makes us feel good, but it leaves us, as Kundera says, living in a pretty insignificant way. Interestingly, some of our most popular intellectuals on the internet are landing in exactly the same place. But most importantly, in Jesus, God has shown clearly to us, does exactly this. God gives himself away in love. And so, in this kind of frame, can we begin to trust in something that's independent of us? Because as a culture, we're not very, uh, we don't feel very safe with external ideas that have a sway on how we live. The question is, could we be brought out of ourselves safely by trusting in something that can be trusted? Is there something better and more concrete than my own inner sense of truth and meaning and ultimately God? I think there is. I think there is a, a home for all of these things. The point is this. <clears throat> None of us are free from the temptation to treat our relationship with God like a spirituality or an add-on to our lives. It's so easy to begin to imagine God as that which brings us peace and comfort and a feeling of connectedness and just stop there. It's so easy for all of us, because of the water we swim in, uh, to operate as if God is an optional extra that is available to us for an extra hit of serenity. And I know I'm guilty of this all the time. It's like I don't want God to actually be God. I just want him to be a vague spiritual presence uh, or a warm pat on the shoulder and a reassuring message of unconditional love, but I don't want him to actually be in charge. But Paul's words still ring out. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives, himself, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Do you hear that? That we are not in control. We are not calling the shots. Our entire being rests on him. And though this may sound narrow, this is actually freedom. Because if your imagination is anything like mine, uh, the versions of God I'll always create aren't very good. <laughs> if my imagination isn't being trained to see God as Jesus, I'll turn him into a disappointed parent or an overbearing landlord or an exaggerated cosmic version of my own internal critic. 
Brendan Manning says it like this. I want neither a terrorist spirituality that keeps me in a perpetual state of fright about being in right relationship with my Heavenly Father, nor a sappy spirituality that portrays God as such a benign teddy bear that there is no aberrant behavior or desire of mine that he will not condone. I want a relationship with the Abba of Jesus, who is infinitely compassionate with my brokenness and at the same time an awesome, incomprehensible, and unwieldy mystery. I don't want a terrorist spirituality where I'm scared all the time. I don't want a benign teddy bear that just says, go for it. I want to come in contact with this unwieldy mystery that is committed to my brokenness and compassion. Paul tells his audience that God asks them to repent. But what that actually basically means in basic terms is agreeing with God's ideas and not your own. I don't know about you, but this is a constant painful question for me. I so often wish that God was just a sense of peace for me and I didn't have to feel the friction of having to lay my life down. But as counterintuitive as it might seem to us, this is a freeing thing. Because it's not really just about getting like a true picture of God. It's freeing because this true picture of God is always better than we think. And the reason in church that we fight for ideas about God isn't because we want to win uh, or we want to be the ones to dictate theology and culture. It's because, like Paul, something has happened in space and time that has shown us that God is more present, more loving, and more involved in human life than we could ever comprehend. And the relationship is so real that to narrow it to our inner intuitions is to lose so much of this uh, reality. We're giving up too much. I was talking to a brilliant young person last weekend uh, who said to me, we were talking about worship songs and how it's, you know, we give our lives to God and all that kind of stuff. And they were like, you know, that's a, that's a pretty big statement. They were saying, you know, I don't know if I really want to sing that because, you know, that's a big deal. And what if I don't like what God does with my life after I've given it to him? And I thought, yeah, that's the question we're all, we're all wrestling with, right? That, that's, the, that's it. Can I trust a God that I can't control that's not made by human hands and conceptions. To believe that God can actually do something better with our lives than we could is the challenge. That maybe it is really hard to let God be God, but we have been stuck looking within as a culture. Stuck treating God like a a source of therapeutic benefits uh, and just a source of uh, comfort, but God is a comfort, and He loves being a comfort to us and bringing us a sense of peace, and He loves drawing near to us. Near to us, So He is a comfort, but He's also a confrontation. Because just like any relationship, there's friction because those two people are not the same. And this is actually great news, because now we are freed from ourselves to become something more in this relationship. So as I come to to finish, I sort of had uh, two different types of people in my mind as I put this together, and you might identify with both, neither, or one of them. Um, The the first type of person that um, 
I guess why I'm saying this, we're going to a time of worship and reflection, and I think it's, it's worth thinking about what of, of what Paul's saying is really speaking to us where we are. So the first group of people, I guess, is I want to ask the question, are you one of the people that's maybe domesticated God? Have we maybe reduced God to the therapeutic as a source of simply just peace and comfort? Have we begun to treat him as a bit of an add-on? And he loves to meet us and bring us comfort. But can we trust him with a little bit more than that? Because it's the first type. Are we, are we in that camp? Is God simply a spirituality or can we let God be God? The second group is that you might be sitting there going, hey, like that good comfort experience of God, authentic experience stuff sounds really good. I would love to know that, but I don't think I really ever have. I've sort of, I've done the right thing and I've um, heard the right things I've got to believe, but I want to know this God who is a person and not just an idea or a spirituality. And I think this could be an opportunity to ask to really, uh, to really experience that God. We've heard over the last couple of weeks that that's begun to happen to a few people for the first time, which is really exciting. So maybe that's you as well. Maybe we need to ask for what's on offer. So I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to, we're going to move into a, a time of worship and really um, to think about those two things. Have we reduced God to an add-on, to a performance-enhancing drug? Or can we let God be God? And if we do let God be God, are we ready to experience how good that really is? Better than anything our minds or inner worlds could make up. Holy Spirit, thank you that you cannot be narrowed or kept to any ideas that a human being could make up. That you are so far beyond us uh, that if we were really to have any sense of how uh, big you were, we'd be so overwhelmed that we'd uh, probably be terrified. But that overwhelming uh, sense, Lord, it has its home in, this, in, the, in, the, in the truth that you are completely for us. And I pray for everyone in this room, Lord, and I pray for myself as well, that I would know you uh, as completely separate to me, but, but completely committed to me as well. And we'd all know that too, Lord, that you would uh, rescue us from our own uh, temptations towards personalization and making you who we're comfortable with. And to, be, to have the faith to let you confront us and to grow us and to show us how satisfying and fulfilling it is to be in true relationship with you and for all our longings to find their home in you, Lord. I pray you'd come this morning and we'd, all, uh, we'd know that this very real God is present with us. Amen.